Last weekend's red flag warning, the first of 2021, exploded Saturday afternoon into a fast-moving grassland fire north of Chico at Munger Road and Meriden Road that blackened 550 acres before being extinguished. The fire was first reported at 30 acres at approximately 2.10 p.m. and expanded to 350 acres in just over one hour. Before the fire was extinguished, five outbuildings were damaged or destroyed, with an evacuation order issued for the affected areas on and near Munger Road. Imagining Community reached out to Zeke Lunder, a wildland fire manager and founder of Deer Creek Resources, a full-service wildfire safety company, for his insights and recommendations for mitigating fire risk. We've got 250 square miles of dead grass in Butte County and lots of people running around doing things in it. So grass fires are just a fact of life. Did you know that before the campfire, more buildings had burned in the grasslands of Butte County than in the brush and timber combined? If you live within sight of tall grass, even in town, you can easily lose your home to a wildfire. There's a lot less cattle grazing going on in Butte County than there was 50 years ago also. This means we have more standing dead grass, which along with the warming climate, means that we have conditions on a dry, windy day where grass fires can spread half a mile before the first fire engines even arrive. If you've got a house or an outbuilding with tall grass and weeds growing right up against it, it's not going to survive a fire without help from firefighters. But a house with good clearance and fire safety can survive on its own. So you can buy yourself a lot of peace of mind and fire safety just by weed eating, grazing, or mowing the tall grass and weeds around your place. But remember, mowers hit rocks and start fires, especially on dry, windy days. So try to mow before the grass turns brown. If you need to cut dead grass, use a weed eater instead and try to finish up your work in the morning before things get too crispy. Keeping the area within five feet of your house free of flammable things like firewood or ratty old tarps, that helps a lot. And keeping a completely barren area a couple feet wide all the way around the house of rock or concrete or just bare dirt is also the single best thing you can do besides mowing for fire safety. There's a lot of good information about home hardening online. But just remember that when firefighters have to stop chasing a fire to save your house, the fire gets bigger. So having a fire safe place not only can save your house, but it can keep the fire smaller, making your whole neighborhood safer. Airplanes, helicopters, they're really effective on grass fires, but they're not always there when you need them. On the Gunnison fire last week, the first in helicopter got grounded with some sort of mechanical problem. Another helicopter had to come all the way from Willits. Next closest one after that was over 100 miles away. And on days with our worst fire conditions, there's usually lots of fire starts across the whole region. And fires taking off in brush and timber usually get the priority for aircraft. So we just can't count on a big air tanker showing up to save your house. Fire is inevitable and fear of fire is healthy. But don't let it make you feel helpless. Dealing with fires is as much a part of living in the West as riding quads, shooting guns, or leaving a gate the way you found it. Maintain your place with fire in mind, and you can rest easier when the winds blow dry. Let's take a listen as Lunder details the need for the community to trust the professionals to do their job in mitigating fire risk, including the need to seek alternatives to media coverage and understanding the full dynamics of prescribed fire on the ground. I think what people need to know about the prescribed fire that we're doing is that these people dressed in yellow who have been out for the last 20 years dealing with the worst fires, the people that you think are the heroes and trust to save you and keep you safe and the people you put the signs up for, they're the same people that are out there doing these prescribed fires. And there's this kind of real cynicism about the ability of the government to get anything right. You know, oh, if the Forest Service is doing it, they're going to lose it for sure. And I want people to have more trust in us. 
you know, you love us when we're putting the fire out, mm -hmm. but we need you to give us your love when we're lighting the fire. And you need to support us. Some of these fires aren't going to stay in the box. It's the nature of, of weather. And none of us want to start the next big fire, but there's, there's, no, there's no doing this without risk. You know, it's not that the fire jumps the line when it's on day one, when it's pushing hard up the hill. It's that a stump is burning a week later and there's a windstorm and a chunk of burning stump rolls downhill into the green and then you've got a fire. But I think people need to recognize that a lot of us who are doing this work are taking enormous risk and we're doing it on the behalf of the people that are going to benefit from safer communities. Mm -hmm. And we're going to need your support. We don't need the media every time there's a, a burn pile that turns into an acre to say, oh, an escape prescribed fire destroyed an acre of Miguelia. It's like, well, one, did it destroy anything? And two, was it a real problem? And three, is the fact that someone left their burn pile that might have been illegal in the first place and went to town and they got away, does that really have anything to do with a professional organization that's out there with all the right equipment doing it in a professional manner? You just heard from Wildland Fire Manager Zeke Lunder airs aired on Chico News and Review on the radio for KZFR 90.1 FM, Thursday, May 13th, 2021. Next up is a bonus segment with Zeke Lunder as recorded on Butte Creek Canyon on April 30th, 2021. So Alan Hartthorne, this is his place and he's, uh, he's done a ton of work to help people learn about the fish that are in here. So he built this spot so we could bring people like you to come meet the fish. Yeah, there they are. Oh, wow, it's beautiful. Look up around the corner, see that dark darkness going all the way up to the white water? Those are all fish? Yeah. That's hundreds of fish. Hundreds of salmon came up from the ocean. Now, what makes the environment so favorable as far as the water that allows them to get all the way up here? Because as I understand it, I've heard that this is one of the most viable salmon runs left in the state year in, year out. Well, there's been a huge amount of money spent to make it happen. You know, back in the 90s. So Butte Creek is really this kind of labyrinth, right? Like, starts off simple enough up by Butte Meadows and right. comes down here, forks of Butte, and it comes down through Helltown and Durham. But once you get past Durham, it goes into these rice fields. And in the past, they just had these dams and they just divert the creek straight out into the rice field. And there were some fish ladders, but like things weren't, in, set up in the fish's favor. And then it just keeps getting more and more complicated as you get farther and farther down into the valley. Butte Creek, it splits off and uh, like it doesn't hit the Sac River until all the way down by the Sac Airport. And along the way it goes through irrigation canals. So the fish used to really have to work a lot harder to get here. So people like the LA Metropolitan Water District, in the late 90s there was talk of listing the Butte Creek salmon as an endangered species and none of the big commercial interests wanted, no one wanted that to happen. When that happens, it's not good for anyone. So LA, MWD water users, and all these agencies spent probably hundreds of millions of dollars on fish passage improvement projects. So we built a ton of huge fish ladders in the valley. We rebuilt a ton of dams. We put in screens on the pumps because people would just pump water straight out of the creek and it would suck up baby fish and grind them up and throw them out in the fields. So that, that made a big difference. Before that happened in the 90s, there were years where there was you know, 20 fish in the whole river, something like that. So now this year we've got something like 20,000. So it's a huge amount of work by a lot of people, and a lot of people work together to make that happen. Who are some of those people? Well, the um, Pacific Coast 
Association of Fishermen's Associations. You know, the coastal fishermen got really involved. They threw lobbying power behind making it happen. The, the farmers got behind it. The state and federal agencies. And it brought a lot of people together. I feel like fish and fire are one thing they have in common is that there are two issues that bring people together across political divides. It's like you can sit down and talk with anyone about fish and talk with anyone about fire. And it's one thing that makes me hopeful about fire and fish is just that people tend to come together around those things regardless of their political bent. So what we're looking at here, right here, is will these fish be hanging out here for some period of time before they go upstream? What, what, what's the lay of the land here? Yeah, so these are Butte Creek, Chinook, and they're the spring run. So the way I understand it is the reason that these fish are spring run is because in the past, before we had all the kind of modern water plumbing and manglement of the valley, Butte Creek didn't actually connect to the Sacramento River in the summertime. It would only really be flowing into the sack in the spring and in the winter. So the fish couldn't come up in the summer. Like most places, the fish start coming up in summer, early fall. They couldn't do that on this creek because the creek wouldn't actually connect to the river. So they adapted to come up in the spring and then they hang out up here, kind of from the covered bridge on up in these deep, nice shady pools. And then they'll spawn in the fall. Because if they spawn right now, the water will be too warm and they need kind of high floodwaters to stir up the gravel where their nests are. So they make their reds here in the fall and it's timed about right so the fish are hatching out and viable right around the time that the first big winter flows come and wash them all downstream. How much further upstream will they go to hatch? They'll go about another five or six miles. Yeah, how close do they get to the headwaters? There's a dam here that's five miles above us. That's oh, the Centerville okay. Head Dam. Okay. But then above the Centerville Head Dam, there's natural waterfalls and other things that block them. So effectively, there's natural barriers, you know, five or six okay. miles upstream. It's California, right? So everything's complicated. One thing about this water is that a lot of this water is actually coming from the Feather River. So Butte Creek, like most places in California, the water rights were assigned during the gold rush. And a lot of the water rights were already bought up by miners by the time that we wanted to do agriculture in the valley. And then there was also hydropower and they decided to bring water over from the Feather River to use, I don't know if it's for mining or ag, but because of that, the powerhouses upstream of here actually get their water from the west branch of the Feather River. And they're legally required to keep a certain amount of water in the creek because if they don't, the water can get too warm and the fish die. So managing this watershed for uh, the fish involves dealing with well, farmers want their water at a certain time of the year. PG&E wants water for hydropower at a different time of the year. There's a lot of juggling, and California is just like that. There, you just have water that comes out of one creek, goes on a canal around to a different creek, dumps in there, gets taken out downstream. And they're diverting water from the Feather River here to Butte, Butte Creek. Yeah. Where does that diversion happen? Below Philbrook Reservoir okay. by Sterling City, and it comes through a tunnel. It, if you ever go on the flumes above Paradise. One of those flumes comes from Feather River, one comes from Butte Creek. And then the water rights on this creek, actually, a lot of that Feather River water goes and waters the M&T Ranch out by the mouth of Big Chico Creek. So there's just a lot of players when you start talking about, like, hey, we, want, we need more water in here at a certain time of year. There's a lot of different competing factions and players. So people like Alan Hartthorne and Friends of Butte Creek, they've really been dogged in pushing PG&E and saying, hey, hey, the water, they're coming out here and checking water temperature saying, hey, the water's too warm, fish are dying, pushing for changes in how the water's managed. How would you describe what we're looking at, the vista of the of the hills and the riparia? Because it's gorgeous. 
Yeah, this is Helltown, and it's just like Upper Park, but deeper and more canyony, right? So we got these mud flows that make the cliffs like you see in the north rim of Chico Creek. There's more trees here than we have over in, in Upper Park. It's kind of like Upper Park up above Salmon Hole, where it starts to be more brushy and a little deeper and more kind of confined canyon. And the creek is a lot wider here than Chico Creek. We're looking down at this pool, and it's got a couple hundred ginormous salmon some of them are pretty beat up already they have this fungus on their noses big white patches and then we're looking at this landscape that is burned twice in the last 20 years and there's gray pine on it and a lot of low kind of oak scrub and brush and it's kind of deserty like we were saying earlier this is a fire landscape everything about this landscape is designed to burn and usually what happens around here is the fire will start when a lightning strike hits on the top of the ridge over there. And then it, fires just don't race downhill very often. So one thing that's important, I think, to say about fire is that, especially in Northern California, we've got what we call a, like a fire regime. Fire regime is kind of a way of summing up like when fires happen, how often they happen, what their effects are. It's just kind of the story of how fire burns in a place. We've always had lightning here, and every 10 or 20 years we get a big lightning storm that starts lots of fires. And then when that happens, it gets smoky and everyone kind of feels like it's Armageddon. But usually what happens is, if you look at the weather patterns on the west coast and in California, in summertime we have this kind of chunk of high pressure air that sits over the west coast for weeks at a time. And that's why it's so hot. That's why it's so still and why the air in the valley gets so crappy is high pressure just kind of is like if you have a lid on the, a pot of water it just kind of simmers there and if you take the lid off then all that steam boils out and yeah, steams up your kitchen or if you say you have a barbecue or a little fire pit and you put a a cover on there that's just a lid the fire goes out you put the lid on your hibachi and it, it just kind of simmers there right so high pressure is like that lid on your barbecue and it keeps the smoke in and it's real still for weeks at a time here so then you have a storm comes through um, or just some sort of frontal passage and the lid comes off the pot and the smoke lifts out and fires kind of kick ass for a couple days but our normal pattern here is if we do get a big lightning storm it's followed by a week or two of high pressure and all that smoke just packs in and the fires often are started on top of the hill and they just kind of back slowly down the mountain during that time Meanwhile, the media is saying, oh my God, it's a disaster, it's a thousand fires, it's devastating, thousands of acres. If you look at the 2020 lightning bust that we had, you know, the vast majority of the acreage that burned in that initial month after the lightning storm, up until September, was, it was what we call good fire. You know, it's backing fire generally. It's just creeping along. It's almost like what we try to do with a prescribed burn. There's places up here in Upper Butte Creek that burned last year under those conditions. It moved through thickets of pine forest and didn't even kill any of the trees. There's good things that are happening. When we have a big lightning blast and everything gets smoky and we've got lots of fires burning, there's good things happening. But then what happens usually is if those fires are still burning in September, then our big winds come and we saw what happened with the bear fire. That good fire makes a big run and then we don't think it's such a good fire anymore. But that's just part of our ecology here is that we're going to have frequent, you know, maybe once a decade, maybe more, mass ignition events that start hundreds or thousands of fires. And then our normal tools for putting fires out, like air tankers, helicopters. One, we're totally overwhelmed because we don't have enough firefighters and never will have enough firefighters to deal with 
a thousand a thousand ignitions on the same day. And two, we just can't use our, our techie tools and our big air tankers. So the fires keep getting larger. That's just reality. That's not ever gonna change. We're never gonna have enough air tankers to solve that problem because it's you know it's smoky, we can't use air tankers at all. So we can't really fight our way out of that. We need to address that that's reality. We can cut a lot of brush around our town, things that we don't want to burn up, our radio mm -hmm. towers, and, and that'll help when there's these big fires. But the more we put out fires, the worse the fuels get. So here we are in Helltown and it hasn't burned for 100 years, but that's not a good thing. Like that doesn't do anything. Every time we put out a fire here, under conditions that would maybe be beneficial, uh, it just makes things worse and worse. And eventually there's gonna be a fire here with those north winds and it's gonna burn everything here and it'll probably kill people and, and then it'll be a real human disaster. So to me, it's really painful to just, to know that's gonna happen. You know, we knew that was gonna happen with Paradise. We knew that was gonna happen with Berry Creek. We knew the scenarios, you know, we knew that 20 years ago. And then to watch people rebuild in Paradise with kind of lip service to mitigation and not addressing that reality that, no, we can't put out all the fires. It's not possible. And no, we can't cut all the brush, the scale of the problem. It's hard to sit with that and watch it happen over and over and get worse each time. Reminds me of a proverb, I won't get exactly right. Only fire can control or contain fire. Right. What would you add to that? Well, it fires, fire does what it wants to do, right? And we kind of can steer it a little bit. And, but yeah, it's our primary tool as firefighters is using fire. And we need to be better at using it you know, this thing with prescribed burning, um, right now people are talking about they really want to scale up prescribed burning. And we have these really narrow windows of time to get it done in what people consider to be a safe way. We have these really narrow windows of time in which the agencies let us use fire. And that's for a good reason in a lot of places. You know, like we used to, as climate has changed and we have later and later dry, rainless falls, you know, when I first started my career 20 years ago, it was really rare for me to go out on a large fire after the second week of September. It only happened a couple of times in the first decade of my career. And now we have, you know, every year we've got a campfire or a bear fire or a wine country fire or another wine country fire. And so that's really cut into what used to be our prime burning season. The other thing about trying to get burning done in the fall is that our firefighters are working so hard now thousand hours of overtime by the end of September that one they don't want to go out and burn in October November and two they have vacation annual leave they need to burn and they haven't seen their family for five or six months so you know relying on the firefighter workforce to get burning done is problematic and it's, and it's a reason that we need to build community capacity outside the government to burn you know part of this conversation about taking back fire like since when did the government come to own the use of fire? You know, the fire, you know, legally in California, if you own property, you can burn it. Unfortunately, we end up with burn bans that are kind of blanket statewide because there's fires in Southern California, you can't burn in Northern California. But if we're really gonna make change and use prescribed fire at a scale, we have to be willing to use prescribed fire in June and July and even August, because we know that there are times that that is doable. And we know that we can control fire in July and August. Like we do it all the time. But there's this real aversion to in-season burning. We're not gonna ever make a dent in it if we try to burn like, okay, you can burn after you've had two inches of rain in the fall, but you can't burn if you have a north wind. And it's like, well, after you've had two inches of rain in the fall, you can't burn until you get a north wind to dry out the fuels. So we've created these really narrow windows in which the bureaucracies feel comfortable letting people use fire. 
And there are good reasons for that. We don't, no one wants to start the next campfire, but it's become unnecessarily burdensome on people who have safe conditions, have the resources ready, and are still denied permission to burn. Can you give our listeners a little bit of background on your 20 plus years working with fire here in Buchanan? Well, I came into fire through the Forest Service. I worked on a timber marking crew, and our job was to mark trees for thinning in the forest for fire safety up around uh, Eagle Lake in Lassen County. What we kind of learned there was that we should walk through the woods with paint and kind of pretend that we were fire. And we should mark oh. the trees that a fire would kill because the, the idea was yeah. using logging to mimic fire. So I like to walk around and think like, okay, if I was a fire, I would torch up this tree and I'd kill that one. And so we just kind of went around and played fire with paint guns, right? And we'd paint a yellow stripe on a tree and then they'd, they'd come and they'd cut it out. So um, got me thinking about just how fire works. And uh, we did some firefighting in that job. And then I got a job at Chico State and the job was to look at fire hazards in Butte Creek and Chico Creek watersheds and ended up doing some mapping through that and got a job when we had some big fires here in 99 that burned the other side of this canyon. That was the first fire mapping assignment I had. And then right after that in 2000, I got hired as a contractor and worked, worked the last 20 years in fire mapping. So we go out during fires and map where the fire is and firefighters use that to plan their attack. So just I've been observing most of the big fires in California over the last 20 years and learning about how, how to burn. You know, as a contractor, I've been burning through most of those 20 years. And the last 10 years or so, I've been helping do burning up in the Klamath River with some nonprofits and tribes up there. And they've really built a culture up there of, you know, we've got school field trips coming out and, you know, six-year-olds walking out to the fire line and watching us burn. And that's been inspiring and made me want to try to bring that work out here to, to Butte County. You know, how can we make that part of our healing? You know, we're also scarred and terrified of fire here. And every time the wind blows, you get on Facebook and people are, people are hysterical, you know, and it's crippling Trauma. us. Yeah. But I feel like it's really crippling us. It's, it's stopping us from moving forward and it's stopping us from really recognizing that reality that fire is the only tool we have to get ourselves in better relation with it. Please subscribe to Imagining Communities podcast and enjoy our full media coverage on YouTube, Facebook and Instagram at imagining community.